Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I invite you to turn to the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel. Let me ask you a question. Have, have you ever had a hero, somebody from a distance maybe that you admired, that you respected, you thought highly of them? Uh, it could be, it could be a, a musician or a, a, a political figure or some leader. Um, it could be a, a church leader or something. It could be maybe somebody you thought highly of with this pristine image and this unimpeachable character. But then when you either met them or you, you learned something about them uh, that changed your opinion of them, right? You had this kind of high view of a person and then you learned something about them and it kind of went, you kind of went, oh, that's disappointing, right? I'm disappointed to learn that my hero has these flaws, right? It's a pretty common experience, I think, uh, for most people. I had... Uh, I had the opportunity when I was in college to meet uh, members of my favorite Christian band. I'm not going to name the band, but there was a band that I loved listening to. I followed their music for years, and they did a concert in a a nearby town. And uh, through a connection with a friend who worked for a radio station in our town, we got uh, basically kind of backstage passes to this concert and the opportunity to interview one of the band members. Uh, and so I was like, sweet, we're there, you know? And so I followed along with this friend and we went and saw this band and I was so excited to meet these guys. Like I loved your music and they've been encouraging to me uh, in the faith. And so I was so excited to meet them. And when I met them, they were so just kind of disappointingly aloof, just kind of relationally cold. And I don't know what I was expecting exactly. I don't know that I'd expect them to like celebrate me or something, but you expect a level of like friendliness or like, I appreciate you being at our show or something. And there was just this kind of just total indifference to the fact that we were there and we were interviewing them and we were interested in kind of promoting their their work and so I just had this really bad taste in my mouth and for a long time I couldn't even listen to their music I was like every time I heard them I was just reminded of that kind of gooey feeling where these people that I had kind of elevated like these are heroes of mine had kind of fallen down a few pegs if you will because of this flaw that I sensed in them now being gracious it must be really hard to live on the road and having people and all their expectations of you everywhere you go. So in hindsight, I can go like, okay, I probably held them a little bit to too high of a a standard anyway. But the point is there was this like this heroic kind of pedestal that I'd put somebody on. And then I found out that they were like human, that they had real flaws or difficulties or or whatever. and, And it sort of changed my opinion of them in a way. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're going to get a glimpse of David in a season of weakness, having apparently temporarily forgotten God's faithfulness and power. We see a different, more timid David here 
than we've seen so far. When he was introduced to us, uh, he was introduced in chapter 16 as the youngest son of Jesse as Samuel came and anointed him, but we didn't really see him in action until chapter 17 when he was the champion of the people of Israel, when he defied the Philistine army and their giant from Gath, Goliath, and he courageously defended the honor of God and went with his sling and stone and defeated Goliath in battle, right? And we, hear, he, we heard him tell stories of fighting lions and bears with his bare hands to protect his sheep, right? We've got this fierce, strong, courageous, faith-filled vision of David, and he's been having military success, and the people are singing his praises, right? This is the David we've come to know. But the David we meet in chapter 21 is a David in exile. It is a David on the run from Saul's murderous plot. And when we see David here, we see him making some decisions that we might question, that we think that doesn't seem like the David of 1 Samuel 17. It's a different David. But I think it reminds us of two important things before we get started into the story. I think, number one, it reminds us that no human being, no matter how God-fearing and admirable, is sufficient in himself. Every human being has weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. And seeing weakness in our heroes helps to keep us from idolatry, right? Because we can tend to elevate somebody to a status that they don't deserve and cannot keep. And so recognizing that even the people we admire have weaknesses uh, helps us uh, to keep from uh, idolatry. Remember that even our great heroes have feet of clay, as it were. And secondly, to the careful reader, God's good hand is no less evident in 1 Samuel 21, even while David acts a little bit less than courageously. Yahweh preserves and prepares his anointed even while David flees in fear and acts like a fool. And so our eyes are shifted away from the apparent impressiveness of a human hero and squarely onto the faithfulness and care of a good God. And that's really what the scriptures ought to do for us, right? To take our eyes away from man and put them onto the Lord and his power and faithfulness. So just as a quick reminder, chapter 20 ended with David taking flight from Saul's court in Gebeah uh, and Saul's murderous intentions uh, having been made all too clear. And Jonathan made it, let him know it is not safe for you to remain in the king's court. So God's anointed is now living the life of a fugitive from the law. And the next several chapters of the book chronicle this period of David's exile. Liam Gallagher says of this season in David's life that he is pursued and persecuted by his enemies, but is preserved and provided for by God. And so there's always this conflict of in the narrative uh, action, the things that are happening. On the surface, his enemies are persecuting him and pursuing him, but underneath the surface, if we're watching carefully enough, we can see God preserving and providing for him. Chapter 21 gives us three scenes, into kind of individual moments, if you will, of God's preservation and provision amid David's fugitive flight. And so we turn now to the first nine verses of chapter 21. 
where we see David receiving uh, the provision of bread. Let me read for you, beginning of verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And we're going to pause there for just a second, uh, just to make note here of the, the, the city of Nob. We haven't heard of that yet in, uh, in our walk through this book. The, in the tabernacle, you might remember, used to be at Shiloh. When Eli was the priest and the judge of Israel, uh, the, the, the tabernacle had been at Shiloh, and that's where the priestly work had uh, continued. Uh, and in fact, Shiloh was the home of the tabernacle for something like 370 years in the life of Israel. And at some point, probably around the death of Eli, it was destroyed and abandoned. And so then the tabernacle and the ministry of the priesthood was moved to the city of Nob. And so it shows up on the radar here uh, because that's where the tabernacle has been moved to. So it's become the new home of the tabernacle. And David wisely seeks guidance and provision from God's priest, right? So it makes sense for him probably to go to the priest, to go to the tabernacle and the presence of God himself. And so he goes to the tabernacle and we meet the priest Ahimelech. Now Ahimelech is a great grandson of Eli. Eli was the, the priest when the book of 1 Samuel opened. You remember he had those wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, and uh, during the battle with the Philistines where the Ark of the Covenant was captured, uh, when his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died in that battle, and then when news came to Eli that the Ark had been captured, he apparently suffered a heart attack or something and fell back and died. And uh, so, so that was Eli, and he had had, because of the wickedness of his sons and his failure to really intervene, God had pronounced judgment upon the house of Eli and said uh, that, that an old man will not remain in your house. And so the priesthood was being removed from him. So now we're several generations out. So Eli had Phinehas, and then Phinehas had a son named Ahitub, and then Ahitub has Ahimelech, and actually other sons as well. But Ahimelech then is a great-grandson of Eli and the brother of, a, of Ahijah, who is Saul's priest. All right, so uh, Saul has his priest with him in Gebeah, and then Ahijah's brother Ahimelech is the priest in Nob at the tabernacle. It gets a little bit confusing, but those family connections, uh, I think, will be important as the story unfolds. And so we meet now uh, the, the priest at Nob, Ahimelech, and he's understandably a bit nervous to find David, Saul's right-hand man, in his tent alone. And so he comes to him and says, why are you alone and no one is with you? And so David kind of makes up a story, probably in an attempt to protect Ahimelech. Honestly, the less he knows, the better, right? He could legitimately plead ignorance if Saul were to question him. That strategy proves to be ineffective. But so look at verse 2, and we find the story that he gives. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So the first thing David is seeking is food, right? He's on the run. He's in the country. He's got apparently some men with him uh, as supporters um, and they're out of food. 
So he goes to the tabernacle where the priest is and says, what do you have? But of course, the story that he feeds him is not true. He's obviously on the run from Saul who's trying to murder him. But he's not necessarily going to tell the priest that. Well, actually, Saul is trying to kill me, and so I came to you first. Thanks a lot, you know. Um, so he, he tells him the story. Now, I'm on a mission from Saul, and I had to leave really quickly. Um, and so he asks for bread. Look at verse 4. Here's what the priest says. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. That's a detail that's easy to miss and just pass right by, but I think there's something important there. The, the, the bread of the presence is a special bread because of its location. This bread is baked and placed in the holy place within the tabernacle, and the, ones who, the only ones who are by law supposed to eat the bread are the priests themselves. And when they eat the bread, they replace it with a new bread. And this bread in the sacred location then represents the presence of God. It's, it's a picture of God's presence with his people as it is in the tabernacle, in the holy place. And so he asks if the men are, have been kept from women. I think there's, there's a concern for kind of their ceremonial cleanness. Ahimelech is probably stretching the law a bit here, it seems, uh, even to offer this bread to them, uh, since really, by law, the priests are supposed to be the ones that eat this, this holy bread. Uh, but nevertheless, I guess, based on Ahimelech's probably knowledge and respect of David and his assumption that he's doing the work of God, he is willing to bend the law a bit to give them uh, this bread, but he does want to make sure that there's, they at least go through the right uh, steps of kind of ceremonial cleanness. And David assures him, yes, we're, we're clean. We're, we've done everything we're supposed to do. And so Ahimelech feeds David and his men with bread from heaven, if you will. Bread that represents the very presence of God. Surely there is an intended reminder here to David and to us of God's presence with David even in the midst of danger and exile. So as David comes to the tabernacle and asks for bread, it's not an accident that the only bread that's available is the bread of presence, and that is the bread that he is fed with. And so David symbolically here is, is refreshed by the very presence of God. And we see God has not abandoned David. He's providing for him and even giving us this vivid picture of God's faithfulness and presence with his anointed. Another interesting tie-in here is back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul had been anointed king, one of the, the signs that Samuel had given him to kind of confirm his anointing is that on his way back home, he would meet some men who would be carrying bread and they would give him three loaves of bread. And that indeed happened. As he was going home, he met these men and they offered him three loaves of bread. And so it's interesting that in Saul's anointing, there was a, there was a, a bread element, kind of this provision of God to confirm the, the anointing. And here with David, 
the new anointed of God, even in exile, God is providing bread for him and his men. I think there's an interesting tie-in there. Interestingly, Jesus cites this story in Matthew chapter 12, when some Pharisees catch his disciples picking grain, uh, breaking the law by picking grain on a Sabbath day. They were walking through a field and and plucking grain and, and eating it, and the Pharisees jump on that and say, your disciples are doing what is not lawful by, uh, by harvesting on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response in Matthew 12 was essentially, don't you know what David did? Entering the tabernacle, seeking bread and eating the bread of the presence, which is reserved for the priests to eat? His point isn't, David broke the law, so I can too. That's not the point that he's making. The point is make, that he's making is something greater than the temple is here. He literally says that to the Pharisees. Something greater than the temple is here. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So if he decides to provide food on the Sabbath for his disciples, or to feed David with holy bread, then he has the authority to do that. And furthermore, the Pharisees are so caught up in rigorous rule-keeping that they've totally missed the very presence of the one to whom the laws point. They want to keep the law, but they're not as interested in meeting the lawgiver when he's in their presence. And so Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the law is here. I'm the one to whom it all points. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so he seemingly kind of exonerates David and Ahimelech in their maybe bending of the law by illustrating that he has the authority to overturn his own law if he needs to. And that the point of all of it, of all of the law, is, to, is for us to recognize the person and the presence of God. And I think there's an application for us there in, in the Pharisees' sort of tunnel vision on the, 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 the rules. Let's keep our focus on Jesus. Following Jesus certainly involves obeying his commands that we find in Scripture, but following commands is not the means of a relationship with Jesus. It's the fruit of a relationship with Jesus. Don't let him out of your view. And there's so much danger there if we start to focus on the rules and the principles and the, the precepts and we miss the person. That's the point of it. So David is fed with bread from heaven, if you will. And then he asked for a weapon. He says again, I was in a hurry. Down to verse 8. David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So what mission did the king send you on that was so important that you ran out without weapons, right? I mean, David's a military guy. He's like a general in Saul's armies. So surely the work that Saul's sending him on would be like, war-related, right? Finding God's enemies and striking them down. And yet he left in such a hurry that he didn't have any weapons. I mean, the story just doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't add up. But nevertheless, he says, I have no sword, so do you have something for me? And the priest said, verse 9, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. The ephod being uh, the, the, the garment that the priest would wear representing the uh, the holiness of God and the sins of the people. If you will take that, take it. 
for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And so he takes the sword of Goliath. So God's now provided David and his men with food, and he's provided David with a weapon, and a pretty interesting weapon at that, the weapon, the sword of Goliath, with which David had beheaded the giant after he had killed him with the stone. And so there it is in the, the tabernacle, and he takes it with him. And so we see God providing for and preparing David even in the midst of this exile. There's one more note to make about this part, this scene of the story. It's a strange, seemingly out-of-place observation that, that happened back in verse 7. I skipped over it, but look at it, if you will. It tells us, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. A Doeg ought to raise our suspicions for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's a servant of Saul. Saul's trying to kill David. So we think immediately Doeg is probably not friendly to David. He's doing Saul's work. Secondly, he is an Edomite. Now, you might not catch that as you're just reading through it real quickly. But Edomites were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And you remember in, with Jacob and Esau, there was this constant bitterness and friction and, and battling and a long time where Esau was seeking to kill Jacob. And that bitterness and rivalry continued down through the ages between the people of Israel and the people of Edom. There was long-standing bitterness and, and feuding between these two peoples with the Edomites frequently attacking Israel. That's a regular kind of part of Israel's history. And Doeg is an Edomite. So he's a servant of Saul, and he's one of the Edomites who was really the enemies of, uh, of the people of Israel, which is kind of an interesting tension there. So in other words, Doeg is no friend of David, and he's been eavesdropping on this exchange in the tabernacle. And unfortunately, we haven't seen the last of him. We won't talk about him anymore this morning, but he will come up again soon. So that'll have to suffice for a note on Doeg for now. So God has fed David with bread from heaven. And the second scene finds David in enemy territory. Look at verse 10. If the decision at the beginning of chapter 1 made a lot of sense to us, that David would go to the tabernacle and seek guidance and provision from God's priest, the decision here is a little stranger. Look at verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Who's from Gath? Goliath. This is a Philistine city, and it's the home of the giant that's been slain by David in battle. And David's carrying Goliath's sword, and he's going to Goliath's hometown to approach the king of Gath. It's an odd choice. I don't know if he's thinking he's going to go try to intimidate them into helping. I don't know if he's hoping that they'll recognize it because he's on his own. They might take pity on him. It's a weird decision that he goes to uh, the king of Gath. And the servants, let's keep reading, verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
And of course, we remember that song being sung by the, the Israelites in celebration of David's victories and Saul being very embittered by that, right? Being very jealous uh, that the people had begun to celebrate David and even elevated him. He's killed 10,000s and I've only killed thousands. What's left but for him to have the whole kingdom, right? That was Saul's response to that song. So now you've got the people of the Philistines here in Gath recognizing this is David. This is the one of whom the people have been singing. He has killed his 10,000s. And even more significant, look what they call him. Isn't this David the king of the land? Even the enemies of God recognize the anointed one of God. Samuel recognizes it when he anointed him. Jonathan has recognized it in making a covenant with him and, and, and pledging his love and loyalty and devotion to David. Even the Philistines acknowledge this is David, the king. Only Saul at this point doesn't get it. Saul is still refusing to acknowledge it. And so the Philistines recognize him instantly as David, the king of the land. And David, because they recognize him so quickly, gets freaked out. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. He just decides to play a part here. I'm just going to act crazy, raving and hitting doors and drooling. and What a weird scene, right? And so the men have seized David and brought them before Achish, the king, Look at verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I love that response. You think I got a shortage of crazy people? I don't need another one. Come on. Get this guy out of my sight. And so David's strategy here is something akin to the so-called insanity defense, right? The, the, where, you, where somebody would plead uh, to be not guilty of a crime by reason of insanity, like not mentally capable of bearing responsibility for, uh, for his actions. And so he just decides, if I act crazy enough, maybe they'll just let me go. And that is strangely what happens. You would not expect that to happen. It's a weird choice. It's a weird strategy. It is a fear-based strategy. It tells us right there that he took their words to heart and was much afraid, and so he changed his behavior. So this, this plan of acting like a madman to try to get out of the grip of the Philistines uh, is a fear-based plan, but by God's mercy, it works. He delivers him from the hands of the Philistines. And so that's the upshot of this whole weird episode is that God mercifully provides protection for David from his enemies. And this, by the way, is the context in which he wrote several psalms. We heard three of them earlier. Devin and Sarah read them to us. Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. The inscription on that psalm tells us he wrote it when he was seized by the Philistines in Gath. So this is the moment, the situation in which 
presumably after being delivered from it, David writes this psalm of praise, saying, I have no refuge. I have many enemies, and I am afraid. But when I am afraid, I will trust in you. And when I trust in you, what's the result? I am not afraid. Friends, where do you take your fears? What do you do with your anxieties and your insecurities? Do you take them to a friend or a family member? Tell them what you're feeling? Take it to Facebook? Kind of crowdsource encouragement or hope? Do you try to drown them with food or drink or some other form of escape? We all battle with fear. In a fallen world, it's inescapable. Adam and Eve ran scared from God in the Garden of Eden, and we've been running scared ever since. It's a part of life in a fallen world as fallen people. So the question is not, will we fear? Will we wrestle with fear? Will we find ourselves afraid and lacking courage? The question is, what do we do with our fear? David's strategy of acting crazy to get out of the grip of Achish seems a bit weird. But on the back side of it, what he's doing is placing his hope in God, placing his trust in God. God is a refuge. God has given us his good and precious word. Let's follow the example of David in Psalm 56. Put your trust in God. That's an action. That's a decision. How do we do that? How do you put your trust in God? When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in God. I I, I can think of three three things to do. Number one, speak truth to your soul. Remind yourself who God is, what he's done for you, and the salvation that he's provided and is preparing for you. Speak truth to your soul. Go to God's word and find truth to remind yourself of. Second, speak your heart to your father. That is, pray. Confess your fears to God. Invite him to strengthen your heart. Ask him for courage. Ask him for faith. Those are gifts from God. Those are things he has to put there. Those are things he has to bless you with. So speak your heart to the Father. Lord, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Please help me. Pray. And third, speak to a brother or sister. Get a fellow Christian into the trenches with you to pray for you, to tell you the truth, to help bear your burden. That's what the church is for. We need brothers and sisters to link arms with and go, I'm struggling. I'm afraid. I'm weak. Whatever the issue is. And get a brother or sister in the trenches with you to pray for you and to help you. Those are ways that we can put our trust in God when we're afraid. So David has been delivered now from uh, the enemy in the strange episode in Gath. And now we'll come to the first part of chapter 22, and we'll cover the first five verses here today. And so the the third scene, we find kind of a, a band of misfits, if you will, gathering in a cave. Look at verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So Adullam is a town, uh, an area in the region of Judah. Uh, It's called the the cave here, uh, probably not because it's the only cave in the area, but because this particular cave has become well known because of David's use of the cave. 
So the, the original readers of First Samuel would have known the cave of Adullam is the cave where David went, right? So that's, uh, that, that, it's, a, it's a known sort of handle for, for people there. So it becomes a significant place for David. Um, but he's, he's run there. He's fled there because he has nowhere to go. Right? He went to the tabernacle and got some provisions, and then he tried his hand with the Philistines in Gath, and now he's like, I don't know where to go. And so he finds a cave. Caves in those days were used as graves. And so the, the very fact of David hiding out in a cave sort of projects the image of death. God's anointed king is hiding, buried, as it were, in a cave. The hopes of God's kingdom are dead, it seems. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you've ever felt like hope is gone. The life I thought I had or that God was building seems to be on hold indefinitely. And I'm stuck in a cave. Well, this cave in Adullam becomes kind of a base of operations for David. It's close to the border of Philistine territory, and so its location provides a strategic cover for him from Saul and his armies because Saul can't mount an attack on David without risking an attack from the Philistines, right, if he's in their view. And so the, the location of the cave makes it more safe for David to hang out in uh, from Saul. And so God's provided David with a strategic shelter in his home region. And moreover, as we'll find, the story develops a bit more. Look at verse 2. Excuse me, actually, the second part of verse 1, after it says he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. How interesting. David has no place to go, and so he hides in a cave. But when the word gets out in his hometown that he's hiding at this cave in Adullam, people start flocking to him. His family comes, but not just his family. This kind of ragtag, ragtag group of, of outcasts, right? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered to him. Why? I think they recognize this is God's anointed. Things aren't great in the kingdom of Israel now with their king, a sort of a, a, a mess of rejecting and disobeying God and bent on the destruction of Israel's most popular hero, right? By this point, everybody's got to know. It's not a happy time for the kingdom of Israel. And when they find out that David is nearby in this cave and alone, they go to him. They flock to him. And David becomes, in a small, foreshadowing kind of a way, the ruler of God's people, right? This remnant, if you will, of, of people, the broken and the, the indebted and the bitter, come to David and he becomes their commander, right? He becomes their king. It's like they go, well, he's not on the throne yet. And actually, he's pretty far from a throne. He's in a cave hiding out. But we'll let him be our king. We'll take him as our king. Doesn't this remind you a little bit of the church? Weak, broken, worn down sinners 
hear good news about the grace of God's provision and gather to his anointed. That's really what the gospel is, right? David commands this ragtag group of outcasts just as King Jesus commands the church. And Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 1, like, think about your calling. Not many of you were like wise and noble and well thought of like god's chosen the foolish things and the weak things of the world right to shame the strong and to shame the wise right so the the church in a sense is sort of this like we're this ragtag group of of nobodies right we're the embittered we're the indebted we're the weak we're the distressed and we've heard god's anointed is here there's grace in god's anointed and so we flocked to him That's exactly the invitation that the Lord Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, in very well-known verses. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christian, this is the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We have the invitation to take his yoke upon us, to remove the yoke of sin and slavery and bondage and trying to measure up to standards and to take upon us instead his yoke, to yoke ourselves to Christ and his finished work. He has perfectly obeyed. He has died in our place to take sin away. He has risen from the dead to defeat death. That's God's anointed. That's the one to whom we are yoked by faith. That's the good news that we have in Christ. And so David in the cave, becoming the commander of this, uh, this bunch of kind of misfits, is a picture of King Jesus ruling over his church by his word. We get another glimpse of God's provision in verses 3 and 4. So we'll read that. Look at, look at verse 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And so his parents are aging and in need of support. And so he goes to the king of Moab and says to them, Please find a place for them to stay or, or keep them with you. And verse 4, he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Why does the king of Moab agree to look after David's parents? Maybe, in part, because David's great-grandmother was a Moabite woman named Ruth. Could it be that God had provided for David's family in this moment by familial bonds he had established a century earlier. And on the basis of Ruth's Moabite credentials, the king extends this mercy to David and takes in his parents. Praise the ineffable wisdom and the kind providence of God that even in relationships like this, a hundred years before it's needed, he establishes provision for his anointed. Well, our text ends with one more expression of God's favor toward David. And it happened so quickly, you might look right past it. Look at verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. 
We know nothing about this man named Gad. It just says, now Gad the prophet. Perhaps he was one of Samuel's company of prophets. We've seen this group several times along with Samuel who are prophesying and praising God. So maybe it's one of Samuel's prophets. We're not told. It doesn't tell us anything about who Gad is other than the fact that he's a prophet. What we do know is this. God has not left David without his word. Saul, sitting on his throne in Gebeah, has not heard a word from God since Samuel had announced his rejection back in chapter 15. Meanwhile, David, exiled in a cave with a motley crew of outsiders, receives inspired wisdom through the mouth of God's prophet. How kind is God. He knows that his anointed is on the run and he's hiding in a cave, but he's not going to leave him without guidance. He's not going to leave him without his word. Friends, you and I have not been left without God's word. Wherever you are in your life today, whatever cave you might find yourself sitting in, God has given you the prophets and the apostles, his sure and steady word to feed your soul and lead you to his anointed king, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's take advantage of the rich food he's provided for us in his word. And if you find yourself in a cave like this, or in exile like this, wondering when things will turn around, or wondering if hope is lost, let's follow the example of David in these psalms that we've read today and put our trust in God.